If only people would just listen to you. You can see things they can't because they're too close to their problems. If they listen to you, their lives would be easier, and you would be the hero, right? Well, not so much. There's an art to telling people what we think while not telling them what to think, or say, or do. How can we offer our perspective in a thoughtful way that doesn't put someone on the defensive? Welcome to episode six of How Can I Say This, where we talk about how to find the right words when words escape us. I'm your host Beth Below, and I'm very glad that you have decided to join me today. In this episode, we'll be looking at some listener questions about telling it like it is to someone you care about, intergenerational conversations, and lopsided friendships. Before we dive into those questions, I want to share a great resource with you. I just discovered the Hidden Brain podcast. It's produced by NPR, and they describe the show as using science and storytelling to reveal the unconscious patterns that drive human behavior, shape our choices, and direct our relationships. In the few episodes I've listened to so far, a standout is from December 2017 called "I'm Right, You're Wrong." It explores the stubborn nature of our personal beliefs, the phenomenon of confirmation bias, and why facts alone aren't going to persuade people to change their minds. It's a great companion piece to the debut episode of this podcast when I spoke with Kern Berry of Pop the Bubble about talking across the political divide. If you love, how can I say this? I predict you will love Hidden Brain. You'll find a link to the show on the episode webpage at howcanisaythis.com. This episode is dedicated to your communication conundrums as submitted by listeners. If you have a question you'd like responded by me or my guests, it's easy to send it along. Go to howcanisaythis.com and click on submit a question. Follow the simple directions, and your question will go into the queue for a future episode. Now let's turn to three listener questions that have recently landed in my inbox. Our first question comes from Anne, who writes: A friend living in Boulder, Colorado, has been experiencing a series of debilitating physical ailments over the past several years that have made it extremely challenging for her to find housing that she can tolerate and to navigate daily life. She is single. No kids, no local family members, a few local friends, and the good fortune of financial security through an inheritance, so she doesn't have to work. I talk with her on the phone once every two weeks or so. My communication challenge is that I listen to her talk through her long list of issues, and I try to problem solve or offer recommendations for possible actions and solutions. Without fail, she always responds with an observation or perspective that essentially shuts down my recommendation. She'll say, "I can't do that because I feel like every path I walk down ends up an impenetrable brick wall or dead end. It's exhausting, draining, and frustrating for me. It's hard for me to simply listen and not offer solutions and ideas." At times, I want to tell her that her negativity is possibly contributing to her physical incapacities, but I don't know how to say that without upsetting her. Anne, it is so clear that your intentions are good, and you have two advantages in this situation. You know your friend well, 
and you have distance, so you can see patterns of choices and behaviors that your friend might be oblivious to. And that makes it frustrating when you try to help. As I said in my opening, if she would just listen to you. I'm not a psychologist and therefore won't go too far in speculating what might be going on with your friend. That said, I can put on my coach hat and offer a few thoughts about her motivations that you can consider as you reflect on how to best navigate your friendship. Based on what you say, it sounds like she has a victim mindset, which I'm guessing is rewarded every time she shares her woes with someone and they offer the equivalent of, oh, you poor thing. I don't mean to sound trite, but it's a need that we all have. We want someone to commiserate with us and say, I feel your pain. We want our experiences validated. There's even sometimes an inclination to embrace and take comfort in the parts of us that feel broken. Because to take action towards feeling better and experiencing happiness or healing is risky. It's outside of our comfort zone. It's vulnerable. I mean, after all, what if we try and we fail? What if we do all the work and nothing changes? And maybe scariest of all, what if our identity is wrapped up in being the victim? Then who are we without the bad stuff? When you're offering her solutions, she could be resisting because in her mind, you're asking her to change something that's worked for her up until now. Think about it this way. Even what outwardly appears to be self-destructive behavior serves us on some level because it keeps us safe from change and it keeps us small. It allows us to stick with the devil we know. To go to your question, what can you say to her? My first thought is nothing. There's probably little you can say in terms of advice that's going to lead to the change that you think should happen. And that's part of the key to shifting the energy and maybe even being the catalyst to your friend's transformation. So the first task is to listen without judgment, without advice, without trying to rescue her. See your job, first and foremost, as being a compassionate but detached listener. Next, be that commiserating mirror, but use a light touch. That might sound like, you seem stressed out about that, or you have a lot going on right now, or wow, it sounds like you're going through a rough patch. Reflect back her own words if you can. The idea is to mirror back to her what you hear without offering solutions. By acknowledging her problems in very basic terms, you're meeting her where she's at. Because that's part of the gap. You're seeing possibility, and she's only seeing pain. So if you're always jumping to possibility, it would seem like to her that you just don't get it, and she won't want to listen. Next, remove the commiseration element and add curiosity. This is a chance for you to be that catalyst I referred to earlier. Ask her, what options do you have? When have you been in this situation before and what did you do then? What's most important right now? Do you want me to do some brainstorming with you? What would support you best right now? With your questions, you can create a space in which she feels supported, seen, and heard while encouraging her to take the lead in finding a resolution. You want the best for your friend, and it's difficult to see her making choices that undermine that progress. And the only thing you can control is your own choices. First, challenge your assumptions that your role is to fix her or solve her problems. Intentionally choose a new role, one that listens but takes no responsibility for her decisions. Instead of offering advice, 
ask questions. She has to own her own solutions anyway. So if you can help her figure out what they are for herself, she's more likely to follow through. Finally, if you try these approaches and you still find yourself frustrated and drained, then you might explore another role altogether, one that only talks to her once a month. You could also decide to be direct and say, I care about you, and I find myself more and more concerned about how you're doing. They say there's a strong mind-body connection, and I've noticed over a number of conversations that when you are feeling less positive about life, you seem to have more body issues. What have you noticed? So notice what we did there. We started with an affirmation of the relationship, we moved to a personal observation, and then we asked her perspective. In addition, if there are articles or videos that you could share that gently convey a message that you want to get across, pass them along to her with a, I thought this was interesting and that you might like it too. That's going at it through the side door rather than the front door, but sometimes it can be an effective way to share a message without directly being the messenger. Then you can bring it up next time you talk. Hey, did you watch that video I sent you? What'd you think? If she hasn't watched it, you can share what you found interesting and let that be a lead-in to the conversation. Even if the conversation doesn't go anywhere, you've at least planted a seed that can be cultivated later on. This approach can work in almost any situation where you feel like you've got something valuable to offer, but the message isn't getting through. Change your assumption that you have to be a hero or that the other person needs to be rescued, and in your new role as witness, commit to being curious and supporting them in figuring out how to meet their own needs. Just the fact that you asked this question, Anne, shows that you have ample self-awareness and compassion to make that kind of shift. Release the burden of trying to save someone who may or may not want to be saved. Who knows, you might even start to enjoy your friendship again. There's so much more that could be said about this, and there's a variation on this theme that comes up in episode three. If you're looking to hear another angle of this conversation, I encourage you to give it a listen. I'll include a link on the page for this episode at howcanisaythis.com. Next, we hear from Deborah, who left her question on our confidential voicemail line. Hi, Beth. This is Deborah from Bellevue brilliant podcast. I just literally finished it. And the question I'm asking formed in my mind as I listened. As people live longer, there is a much greater span between the young and the old. So how can we improve intergenerational conversations between those who are oaks and those who are acorns? Thanks. Deborah's question can be answered on multiple levels because there are so many differences between generations, whether it's around technology, societal norms, language, or any number of variations that people born at different times experience. I took this question as an opportunity to look up what constitutes a generation. Here's what Wikipedia had to say. A generation is all of the people born and living at about the same time regarded collectively. It can also be described as the average period generally considered to be about 30 years during which children are born and grow up, become adults, and begin to have children of their own. As outlined in a September 2018 CNN post, there are five generations of Americans alive today. The greatest generation, or the GI generation, the silent generation, baby boomers, Generation X, and millennials. The greatest generation was born in 1924 or earlier. They lived through the Great Depression and fought in World War II. 
The silent generation was born roughly between 1925 and 1945. While they were considered more conservative than their parents, they also heavily influenced pop culture through music, film, journalism, and satire. The baby boomers were born between 1946 and 1964, with some saying the first boomers were born closer to 1943. They were so named because of an increase in births post-World War II. Gen Xers, which I'm part of, were born between 1965 and 1979 or 80. My quick research reveals that the origin of that label came from Douglas Coupland's 1991 book, Generation X, Tales for an Accelerated Culture. This was followed by generations Y and Z, most often lumped together and called millennials, which includes people born between 1981 and 1997 to up to 2000. The present generation has yet to be officially named. Younger millennials, say those born in 1994 or later, have never known a world without email, the internet, or cell phones in their pockets. I share all of that to provide context for my response, because first and foremost, if we want to have a productive intergenerational conversation, we have to look beyond someone's chronological age and consider their unique perspective shaped by the history that defined their generation. To give an extremely simplistic and maybe even stereotypical example, someone born during the Depression era might see the availability of 20 different types of bread at the store to be excessive and gratuitous. To the millennial who has never had any fewer choices than that, 20 types aren't enough if they don't include a gluten-free organic version of raisin bread. So what can we do to bridge the gap? The simplest response I can think of is to first release assumptions and stereotypes. I'll give you an example of how that's worked for me in my life. Almost 15 years ago, I was new in a job that I was super excited about. It was a small staff at a nonprofit organization, and I was the only person in my role. I was 33 years old at the time. Just a week or so before I joined the team, a retiree in his mid-70s named Howard had come on board as a regular in-the-office volunteer. What I'm about to tell you I don't think I've admitted out loud to anyone else except my husband before. I resented Howard's presence. He needed lots of help and direction, and he also seemed to need a lot of attention. He didn't know how to use the computer, and my boss was inviting him to sit in on meetings for reasons that I couldn't understand. My irritation was mild, but it was pretty constant. That said, within a few weeks... I started to learn a bit more about who Howard was and how he came to the organization. Then I started to help him with the computer, teaching him how to use the mouse and send emails. He told me about his career in the Marines, then as a high-level consultant. Howard and I bonded over me mentoring him around technology and him mentoring me around organizational development. In time, he became a very special friend and confidant, and I grew to love him. I came to look forward to our conversations and our lunches together. And after I moved and his health declined, I made sure to visit him whenever I was in town. And it's really weird because as I'm reflecting on this, I'm sitting in an office that has a bar directly below and through the floor, I can hear the music that's playing. And as I'm thinking about this, they start playing a bagpipe version of Amazing Grace just as I'm about to share that one of the only life regrets I have was not getting to visit with Howard one last time the summer before he died. 
Hearing Amazing Grace, just as I'm holding him in my memory, makes me believe that he's still with me. But I digress. Let me get back to Deborah's question. To use her language, Howard was an oak and I was an acorn. He was set in his ways and I was still figuring out who I was. He was of the silent generation. I was a Gen Xer. Here's the wisdom that I gained from that experience that I hope goes toward adding value to Deborah's question. When you're in a situation where you can engage with someone of a different generation, challenge your assumptions about who they are and what they believe. Even those who have lived in the same era as you can't be pigeonholed into a set of characteristics shared by all. Across generations, that difference is even more profound. Let go of any stories you have about their worldview. If you're younger, remember that they were once you, and you will at some point be them. If you're older, remember that you were once them, and they will someday be you. The point being, you're both human beings on a similar journey. At a heart level, you have much more in common than you realize. What does anyone want, no matter what their age? To be seen and heard, to be loved, to be acknowledged, to be useful. So look at the other person and ask yourself, what can I acknowledge? What does this person have to share? What do I have to share with them? What can I learn from them? What can I teach? With Howard, once I learned that he was relatively new in the community, that he was about to give up a very public role that was integral to his identity for 33 years, and that his time at our nonprofit was a lifeline for him, I was able to more deeply empathize with his situation and make a meaningful connection. It wasn't oak to acorn. It was human to human. Finally, you can simply start a conversation with the question, what's it like to be you? If need be, you can elaborate. What's a typical day like for you? Who are the important people in your life? What do you consider to be a good day? But that simple question, what's it like to be you, can open up paths of discovery that transcend generational differences, yet still honor that we have unique experiences and perspectives. Thank you so much for that question, Deborah. It's one that we could explore in more depth, and I'm making a note to look for a guest expert to come on a future show to build on the topic even further. We close with a question that was submitted anonymously through the online form. The listener wrote, Friendship is not always equal, but it should be fair. Why is it always your turn to talk? What about my turn? For this question, I had to revisit the difference between equal and fair, since they aren't the same thing, but can be used interchangeably by many people. Equal means two or more entities receive the same exact treatment. For instance, everyone in the group receives $10 to buy lunch, no matter their age, economic status, or nutritional needs. That's equal treatment. If we were to distribute money according to what's fair, different people might receive different amounts. For instance, if I'm lactose intolerant and I can't drink milk that's available for a dollar, I might need more money to pay for the $1.50 almond milk option. It wouldn't be fair if my needs weren't considered and I was left thirsty. To move on to our listener's question, it sounds like they acknowledge that they're not looking for the exact same thing out of the relationship when it comes to talking and sharing. Just because you had the floor for 10 minutes to talk about your day doesn't mean I should necessarily get 10 minutes to share about mine. It's not a finite pie that we divvy up equally between us at all times. Fair is that there will be a give and take in the conversation based on who needs what at the moment. 
Maybe you had a really great day, and you can't wait to tell me. My day was average, so I can sit back and listen and celebrate with you, without needing to share the ho hum details of my average day in return. And another time, the tables might be turned, and you'll listen to me tell my tales of adventures. What happens though when you're never given that chance? What if the other person seems clueless to your needs? I'm going to make some guesses, knowing that there's a lot I don't know about the friendship. For instance, there might be an introvert-extrovert dynamic at play. Extroverts verbally process, which means they might do the majority of talking in a relationship. If you're an introvert, they might not realize that you process internally. Just because you're not talking doesn't mean you have nothing to say. So there's an opportunity to share with your friend. Just because I'm not talking right away when we get together doesn't mean I don't have anything to share. I just need to warm up to the conversation and think a bit before telling you stuff. When you're done telling me about your weekend, I'll tell you what's been going on with me. You could also say, "I'd really like to talk with you about my weekend. Do you have time to listen?" That's asking for what you need without explicitly saying. I need you to shut up for a minute, which might not go over too well. You could go the direct route if it's a friend with whom you have trust. That might sound like, "I really value our friendship, and it's sometimes hard for me when I don't get a chance to tell you what's going on with me. There are lots of times when I want to get your advice or just share with you something that's happening with me, but I don't get that opportunity because there's so much going on with you." We run out of time before I get a chance to share. It would really mean a lot to me if you sometimes ask me how I'm doing first before you share about your day. Can we give that a try? Of course, you have to find your own language and make it match the relationship and situation. The point is to be honest, which requires a little vulnerability. Tell the other person that you appreciate them and the friendship, and that you feel like you're missing opportunities to share yourself with them. They might be surprised to learn about how you feel, and they'll be anxious to change their behavior. If they have no idea what you're talking about, there might be other issues at play. It might be that this isn't the person that you can depend on to be a confidant or a good listener for you. Not everyone can fill that role. If you have other ways to get your needs met, then let go of expecting that person to be that listener for you, and just enjoy them for their talkative selves. And if you can't enjoy their energy for what it is, knowing that they won't change, then it might be time to examine the relationship and if it's something that you want in your life. I'm not suggesting that you can't be friends, just that if your definition of fairness isn't being honored, it's an opportunity to shuffle the friendship deck and take a good look at who you're letting into your life. I want to offer one final idea in two parts before I leave this question, and these both. Assume that maybe having the kind of conversation I just described doesn't work, or based on what you know of your friend, it wouldn't be an effective strategy. Part one is to use body language. A friend was telling me that when someone or many someone's are dominating the conversation, she uses body language to indicate that she wants to jump in. Specifically, she literally raises her hand like we did in school. I do the same thing myself in groups. It's not a raise your hand high over your head gesture, but maybe just pivoting your hand up from a bent elbow in a gesture that says, "Hey, I want to have a turn here." And somewhat related to that suggestion is the idea that you might have to get comfortable interrupting the other person. 
To go back to the introvert-extrovert dynamic, extroverts are typically comfortable with interruptions in a conversation. They see them as you being engaged and excited and exchanging in a dialogue. However, introverts tend to see them as rude. You can see why, then, that the conversation can become very lopsided. Part of claiming your stake in the dialogue might be deciding to interrupt. Of course, do it tactfully and try to find a moment when it makes sense. You could say, oh, I want to jump in here, or hold on, I have to share a thought right now before it gets away from me. From that point forward in the conversation, maybe there will be better balance, partly because you've started a pattern of interrupting and you might have more back and forth. If you're not used to interrupting, it will probably feel uncomfortable at first. Test the waters just a little and see if it helps to give you some airtime. It might take some practice, and actually I guarantee it will, and you might goof it up a few times. That said, if it's done thoughtfully and in the spirit of being engaged in the conversation, then it will probably be well-received. I wish you well as you work to find that fairness in your friendship. As for a closing call to action, I leave you with this. Have a conversation with someone you don't expect to have anything in common with. Enter into it with the intention that you want to learn, what's it like to be you, by asking questions about what they care about, who they admire, or what they hope for. Sometimes the answers to those questions can even come out by asking simple small talk questions about the weather or vacations or family. Be open to the conversation going somewhere or going nowhere. It doesn't really matter too much. The important thing is to express curiosity about another person and be unattached to what happens. We need more of that kind of connection in the world, and it's nice to practice it when there's very little risk and nothing on the line. If you have a how can I say this question to submit for a future episode, you'll find the online submission form at howcanisaythis.com. You can also leave a text or a voicemail 24-7 at 562-704-6643. And that's again, 562-704-6643. And no worries if you didn't have pen and paper to write that down, you'll find the number on the Submit a Question page on the website. Regardless of how you decide to submit your question, you have the choice to be completely anonymous if you like. You can ask about any general question or situation, or you can get more specific. Either way, we would love to hear from you. And if you enjoy this podcast, I invite you to share it with your family, friends, and colleagues. I also ask that you take a moment to leave a review on iTunes, because reviews and subscribers really do help boost the visibility of the show. And in my mind, the more people who listen, the better conversations we can all start having. You can find links and information on how to leave a review and subscribe at HowCanIsayThis.com. And thank you so much to those who have already left a review. I love that the show is already creating positive change, as expressed by M. Griebler, who wrote on an iTunes review. Just listening to the first two episodes gave me the tools to unlock a problem I've rested with most of my life, the art of saying no. And to that, I say, hooray. Thank you so much for sharing what you took away from the conversation, M. Griebler. This is Beth Below, and you've been listening to How Can I Say This? Our podcast producer is Paul Messing, and our theme music is by Brett Anderson. Thanks for joining me today, and I invite you to take what you've learned here and use it to speak up, speak out, and speak courageously. Courageously.